Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the November 2021 edition of Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Morelia. Tonight, we'll get a chance to meet one of our new community leaders and someone who is also part of our local LGBTQ community. Kevin Kilgore is the police chief for the Sebastopol Police Department. He started work there this last March and already has a lot of experience to talk about. Chief Kilgore will share his personal story as well as talk about some of the challenges facing law enforcement here locally. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, November 28th, 2021. This is Greg Moraya with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of November 28th, 2021. Taiwan, an island nation in East Asia, will become the first country in the region to host the World Pride International Events. Its southern special municipality territory, Kaohsiung, will hold the events in 2025 following Sydney, Australia, who's hosting it in 2023. This year's World Pride was held in the neighboring cities of Copenhagen in Denmark and Malho in Switzerland, the first time the festivities were held in two nations. Kaohsiung was chosen by members of World Pride organizers Interpride in a final vote to decide to host this last week, choosing between the territory and Washington, D.C., a bid which was represented and lobbied for by Capital Pride Alliance. In an announcement of the decision, Interpride pointed out their enthusiasm to finally bring the famed international festival closer to the home of millions of LGBTQ Asians. And a new study is showing LGBTQ people are doing much better than cisgender heterosexual people when it comes to getting vaccinated against COVID-19. According to a new survey from the Human Rights Campaign, 91% of LGBTQ adults are fully vaccinated in a poll that was conducted this last summer. That's 20 percentage points higher than the general population's vaccination rate. The results varied somewhat by race, but at least 85% of every racial identity of LGBTQ people that the Human Rights Campaign surveyed reported being fully vaccinated. Only 6% of LGBTQ people in the survey said that they are unvaccinated and have no intention of getting one of those vaccines. 19% of the U.S. population said that they will never get vaccinated, according to an NPR poll conducted in September. One reason that LGBTQ people are more likely to be vaccinated was that they reported much more confidence in the vaccines than other Americans. 60% of LGBTQ adults said they had a great deal of confidence in the vaccine, much more than the 33% of U.S. adults who said the same thing. The results also varied greatly by gender. 68% of LGBTQ men said they had a lot of confidence in the vaccines, compared to 54% of non-binary adults and 58% of LGBTQ women. Confidence also varied by race, with black LGBTQ adults the least likely to express a great deal of confidence in the vaccines at 52%. Overall, LGBTQ people of all races and genders are more confident in science than in the U.S. public in general. Another reason that LGBTQ people might be getting vaccinated more is that LGBTQ people are more likely to report having gotten COVID-19, which means they are also more likely to know someone who's gotten it. 21% of the LGBTQ adults said that they had either tested positive or were pretty sure that they've gotten it, compared to 14% of the U.S. general population. And People magazine named a transgender man on their 2021 list of the sexiest men on television. People wrote about 911 Lone Star actor Brian Michael Smith. They said, quote, we will definitely not have a hard time keeping an eye on him, end quote. Smith responded on social media saying, quote, I've been called a lot of things, but this is a first. I am incredibly honored to be included on this list with so many actors I admire, end quote. 
no transgender men have ever been included before on the various sexiest men list by People magazine. The 38-year-old actor has appeared on several shows before 911 Lone Star, including The L Word, Chicago PD, and Girls on HBO. In 2019, he became the first out black transgender cast member in a regular role on a network series with 911 Lone Star. And the Toronto-based Rainbow Railroad announced this month that the first group of LGBTQ Afghan refugees arrived from the United Kingdom just before Halloween. The organization said they're safe, but hundreds more remain unsafe in Afghanistan. The first group of 29 LGBTQ Afghans arrived in the United Kingdom on October 29th. The Rainbow Railroad has fielded requests from 700 LGBTQ Afghans and identified an estimated 200 more in need of immediate evacuation. This immigration crisis, along with others, is definitely one of the most important stories of 2021. Be sure to join us for an in-depth look at this issue and how local efforts are trying to help LGBTQ immigrants next month on Outbeat News In-Depth. If you have a local LGBTQ news story, announcement, or an event you'd like to share with our listeners in this segment, tell us about it by going to our website at outbeatnews.com. Just click the Submit Event button at the top of the page. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. My guest tonight is Sebastopol Police Chief Kevin Kilgore. He's been on the job since last March, and he brings with him to the city law enforcement experience from the Midwest and Southern California. He's also well-educated. He has a master's degree, and he's recognized statewide as an expert in community policing and procedural justice. Chief, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, great to have you here. Uh, And to learn about you a little bit, you've gotten settled down in Sebastopol for a few months now. You started in March, right? Last March? Started in March, going on the ninth month now. Nice, nice. Uh, So let's start with a little bit about your background. Um, As I know it, you grew up in the Midwest. I did. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. I spent the first, goodness, uh, I guess almost 30 years of my life there. Uh, My family is still there and uh, became a police officer in 1997, went to the academy in 1996 and uh, became a police officer in 1997 at the ripe age of 21, uh, serving there as a deputy sheriff for a little over three years and then a municipal police officer for a little over six years, and then came out here to California in 2006 and have been here for the last 15 years in law enforcement. So you, like me, started your law enforcement career pretty young. Um, I did. And I don't know, for you, was that something you always wanted to do, or was there a moment that inspired you to get into the business? Well, I spent a lot of time in my youth in casts from Broken Bones, Uh, And so my parents really wanted me to be a physical therapist. So I went to college my first year, did undergrad stuff for uh, physical therapy and uh, apparently Dean's List and a GPA of 3.86 was not good enough to get into physical therapy school, which was fine with me because I really wanted to be a police officer. And uh, we had friends of the family who were police officers. And I had the opportunity when I was uh, 18 years old to start working as a police clerk and dispatcher and just fell in love with that type of environment 
and being able to go out, help people, and then not be stuck in an office mm -hmm. all the time and just really wanted to be out in the, in the field and all the neat stuff that police officers got to do. I did a ton of ride-alongs as a kid, uh, 18, 19, 20 years old, and just fell in love with it. Yeah. I, you know, our careers are so, our, our career paths are so parallel because I started working as a dispatcher as well. And I really loved that job. I mean, it was, it's really a fun job, but being out on the street is also a, a huge amount of fun and very challenging and interesting. But I don't know if it, for you, if it is the same as it was for me, but I knew going into this business that I was going to have to keep who I was very, very hidden. Uh, in 1978, when I walked in the door of the police station, within the first hour, I heard, don't be gay, don't be a queer, and worse. What was on your mind when you started working? Well, it was very much the same. Uh, you know, I grew up in the middle of the Bible Belt and uh, grew up in a very strict religious home. Uh, and it was just not something that was allowed. It was not allowed at my house. It was not allowed in my uh, life. And it, I knew that it was going to be something that I had to keep very quiet too. And I did. Um, I was very successful in that. And I had a few very close friends who I finally felt comfortable with after many years of divulging that information to. Uh, some who I have known now for 25 years since I started law enforcement who I just told a couple years ago, Oh wow! Uh, but other others who I told uh, early on in my career, uh, not at 21, but probably more so around the age of about 27 ish. So obviously you grew up and started working in an environment that's very different than a lot of places in California, certainly not every place in California, but, but a lot of different places. And, uh, you know, I know for me, growing up in a Catholic family, that was certainly challenging, but not nearly as challenging as I think it must have been in a conservative Baptist community. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like to grow up in a Catholic family. I didn't have anybody in my family who uh, was Catholic, but I do know what it's like to grow up in a Baptist home. And I grew up in a very independent, strict Baptist home uh, where we went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, sometimes Monday night, uh, whatever it was, we were there. Um, and I grew up in a Baptist school as well. Mm. So at a very, very small private school, my dad was my high school Bible teacher. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was difficult because you hear messages and sermons from the pulpit and you have this knowledge of yourself. Uh, but the whole time you're being told that basically you're committing a sin mm -hmm. and that when you die, you're going to go to hell. Um, and so it was, you know, something that I tried for many, many years to pray the gay away. And then came to the realization that that was just me mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to be able to do that. And so I came to terms with the fact that I was gay. And then as I, matured and had broader perspectives of thinking and started to get out on my own, I began to realize that 
that was not something that I really had a choice in, mm -hmm. that this is the way I was made and uh, this is the way I'm supposed to be. Good for you. So what brought you out to California? Uh, 2004, I met my now husband in Cincinnati and uh, he was applying to different med schools. And I originally thought that he was possibly going to stay in Ohio uh, to go to med school, which would have allowed me to stay in the, in the um, working environment that I was in. Uh, but then he ended up getting into med school in Los Angeles at UCLA in Charles Drew University. And that was his dream. He wanted to be back in LA. He had lived in LA before, wanted to be back in LA. And we were only six months into dating when he found that out. Oh, wow. And so uh, I made the trip with him to Los Angeles to see how it was. And I had been to LA once before. I had been to LA when I was uh, 20 years old in college. I rode on the uh, equestrian team at Miami of Ohio. And the national com competition for the Intercollegiate Horse Show Association was in Los Angeles. So I'd been to LA once before. And of course, at that time, I wasn't thinking I'll live here. I was just in awe with LA because I'd never been that far mm -hmm, west before. Mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, came out here with him and spent uh, almost, a, I guess, three days to maybe a week out here and thought there was no way that I would be able to deal with the traffic on a regular basis in Los Angeles. And so we made the decision that I was gonna go back home. And once he was done with med school four years later and found a place for residency, uh, that I would then figure out where we we're gonna to move to. And that lasted about three weeks. <laughs> and uh, so then we had the conversation of either I'm moving or we're splitting. And so I started looking for jobs and was fortunate enough to be uh, picked up as a police officer for the University of California and joined them in 2006 and made the move. Wow. So you became an officer at the university where he was going to med school. I did. Yeah. So he, uh, he, he has a dual MD degree. He has one from Charles Drew University, which is where he did a lot of his studies, but they did a lot of their practical application stuff at UCLA. Okay. And he has an MD from UCLA as well. So uh, when he would go do his practicals and I was looking for a job, he found out that they had their own police department and let me know about that. I looked at it and thought, okay, well, that's a, a good starting point. And so went there and thought that uh, I would be there for maybe a couple of years and then move to a municipality, but ended up just falling in love with the university environment and uh, the accessibility that we had to the greater Los Angeles area, but then the state as well, because we got to travel to all the other uh, UC campuses mm -hmm. that allowed us to do policing. So it was a great way for me to experience California um, in a way that I had never experienced before and probably never will experience again because of the uniqueness of that environment. So you got over your frustration with the traffic. Well, I don't know that I got over the frustration with the traffic. <laughs> I think I learned to adapt to it. And uh, there were many, many years of, of frustration. I, w at one point, we lived four and a half miles from the police station, which, you know, in any other city would take probably about 10, maybe 15 minutes to get there. But in Los Angeles, I could walk home faster than I could drive home. 
Oh my gosh. Uh, that's because crazy. there were days that it would take over an hour to get four and a half miles because of the traffic in Los Angeles, especially in West LA. That's crazy. Just crazy. It, I will never complain about Highway 12 traffic driving to Napa ever again. <laughs> uh, so you started out as a, a, an officer in the Midwest, ended up at UCLA. You know, as you got deeper into this law enforcement career, was aspiring to be a chief ever part of that vision for you? It, for most of my career, it was not. Um, I wanted to be what we referred to as a slick sleeve, which nothing on our sleeves at all, no stripes. I just wanted to be an officer because I loved being in a patrol car. I loved being out engaging with uh, the community and different walks of life. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved the policing aspect of that as well. And really had no desire to promote, really had no desire to supervise. Uh, and then as I started getting older, and realized that I was not a young man anymore. And that overnight, somehow I became the old guy at work. I realized, eh, you know, maybe I should start thinking about a change. And so I had gone to college, I had gotten my associate's degree. Um, and then at that time, when I started my career in 1997, you know, there was not a big push for education. It was, it was desired, but it was not something that was really looked at critically. But as I got further in my career, I realized that education was being looked at mm -hmm. and I needed to do something. And so as I got older, I realized, okay, I wanted to have a, a deeper influence and impact on an agency. And I wanted to be able to teach people the right way to lead. Uh, and so I had that opportunity as an informal leader as an officer, I had the opportunity to do that as a formal and informal leader as a field training officer, but I knew I wanted to do more. And so I promoted to Sergeant. I went back at 36 to get my bachelor's degree. And once I got my bachelor's degree, then I started seeing that I think I wanted to promote more and have an even bigger impact on an agency. Uh, and so I knew that I was going to have to go back for more education. So I finally went back at 40 for my master's degree. Uh, I was promoted to sergeant. I started my career in 1997. I moved to California in 2006 and joined the University of California. I was promoted to sergeant in 2011. And I was promoted to lieutenant in 2017. Mm -hmm. And then as a lieutenant, your eyes start to open even more because you start to have that broader perspective and you are seeing leadership in a different way. You're seeing uh, those who are leading agencies uh, that are positive and those who are lead leading agencies that improvement may be needed. And you start to think, at least I started to think, well, I think I could do that. And I think that I could lead effectively and lead, lead positively and have a positive impact on an agency. And so I, I began my trajectory uh, and path toward wanting to be a chief. And I didn't know what that path looked like. I didn't know if that, I mean, in my, in my mind at that time, it, it meant promoting from lieutenant to captain and then 
depending upon from there what, where we would go, it would either be captain, deputy chief, or mm-hmm. assistant chief, and then the chief. Uh, but that was not the case. And so uh, as luck would have it, I began looking at chief's selection processes uh, throughout the state and put my name in the hat for a few different processes and was lucky enough to be a finalist in many of those processes and then finally selected as a chief for the city of Sebastopol in, um, in February of 2021 and began my tenure on March 1st. Wow. Yeah. You know, I think there's kind of a stereotype that every kid who starts out being a police officer wants to be a chief, that that's sort of the end goal. And, um, I, you know, maybe it was for me at one point, but there is, and you mentioned this, there is a joy in doing the work. And the further that you promote up, the further away from that work you you get. Um, and I'm always grateful. Thank goodness there are people like you that want to be a police chief because it is a hard job. It is a difficult job. And, and you know, my career, I would say that probably as I started looking at really thinking about being a chief, that's only occurred in about the last six years, mm-hmm. uh, maybe five years. And uh, it wasn't wasn't something that I ever had a goal set for. Uh, but those goals change over time. And I've, you know, being a chief in a small city, I still get to step back into the role of being a police officer sometime and sometimes in assisting our officers and our sergeants with stuff. And I can tell you that it fills my heart with joy and makes me smile to be able to get back into the field and do the things that I truly miss doing Yeah, uh, because you just don't get those opportunities as a chief. Right. Especially with a large agency. And, and I think you're, right. you're fortunate in that you've got a, a smaller agency in a small town that allows you that, you know, that variety, but I'm curious, did you even, have you ever even heard of Sebastopol when you were in well, LA? I did, and the reason that I did is, is because I am a huge, huge fan of the Tiny House Movement. Oh. And the Tiny House Movement began in Sebastopol with Jay Schaefer, who had the Tumbleweed Tiny Home Company, and I followed him frequently to see what was developing with his company. And so that's how I had heard of Sebastopol. Uh, so, it, but it's not well known to anybody um, for the most part, I think, unless you're in Northern California, you have a little bit of knowledge of it. But when I told people in Southern California that I was going to be the police chief in Sebastopol, they couldn't even say the name. And so uh, it, it's, uh, I did know about it and it's, uh, it was something that was on my radar, but never a thought to me that this, that I would be the police chief there. Yeah. And, and, you know, like you, I knew nothing about it until I met my husband, Tony. He grew up there. His family is still there. We're, we're there frequently. And I remember driving through, driving there the first time to see it. And, you know, I was struck by, okay, this feels like St. Helena, which I was very familiar with. It feels like Calistoga, which I was very familiar with, uh, having worked up there. And it's just, it's just a cool place. Uh, it is. It is so comfortable. Uh, it's, it's in an evolution, right? There's, 
the Barlow and some of the new areas that, that are coming in there, but it still has very much a hometown feel to it. Yes. You know, you yes. can walk down the main street, you can walk over to, you know, Mimi's to get an ice cream, which is famous in the region, and it just feels very at home. Yes. And it's a place that, you know, is unique to me, having worked in Los Angeles for 15 years. I can't say that I was always comfortable walking down the street in a uniform, going into a restaurant in a uniform. Uh, but in Sebastopol, I feel very comfortable doing that. Now, I have to ask a little bit about culture shock because, you know, I'm envisioning this move from the Midwest out to L.A., you know, with millions of people, tons of traffic, but the beauty of the beach and a pretty stable year-round environment uh, temperature-wise, right? And so now you're up in this small town uh, where it's cold and foggy in the wintertime and very distinct seasons. Uh, what's What have you experienced culture shock-wise, if any, uh, since your move? Uh, you know, I don't know that I've really experienced a whole lot of culture shock coming up to the Northern California area because having grown up in the Midwest, we had four seasons, uh, yeah, I guess, for 15 yeah. years of living in Los Angeles and having pretty much 360 days a year of sunshine. Uh, it's a little bit different, but I like the fact that we can wear hoodies a lot up here. Um, I do love rain and I really miss thunderstorms from the Midwest. So I am enjoying the rain. Now I might get to a point where I don't enjoy the rain anymore. I don't know, but uh, right now I'm, I'm loving that. I think the biggest culture shock that I have is, is that there's two things that have struck me as uh, interesting here. The first is, is that nobody uses the area code when giving out their phone number up here. And many places don't even have the area code listed on their business cards or anything like that because it's just assumed that it's 707. And the other thing that I find interesting and somewhat funny is, is that everybody thinks that Sebastopol is so far away because we're in West County of Sonoma County. Mm. And what I find funny is, is that we are about uh, six miles from Santa Rosa, 10 miles from Katahdi and Rohnert Park uh, and Sonoma State University, yet everybody thinks that it's very far away, even when you talk to people in Katahdi, <laughs> Rohnert Park and Santa Rosa. And when I've had these conversations, they'll say, yeah, I don't know if I want to come out to Sebastopol because it's just so far away. And my response has been, you know, I, I could understand the 10 mile drive might be a lot if we were in Los Angeles where it might take you 50 minutes or more to get 10 miles. Right. But in Sonoma County, 10 miles takes you about 12 to 13 minutes. It's not that much. And traffic here is not traffic. Um, it's at actually moving at a greater pace than 10 miles an hour, even if it is backed up. Uh, so those are the two things that I find interesting and funny that, that have been somewhat of a culture change and shock to me, uh, coming up here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great. Uh, so I'm curious when you went through the interview process, uh, Sebastopol, small town, but there is a large LGBT population here in the North Bay, clearly 
were you able to be out from the beginning in the process or how did that all go for you? I was, you know, after I uh, moved to Los Angeles in 2006, I waited till after my probationary period was up. And that's when I began telling people in my department, because coming from the Midwest, I just didn't know how they were going to react. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure that they were making their assessments of me based on the work that I performed and not based on uh, any type of characteristic that they might uh, perceive or know about. Mm -hmm. And so uh, after that, I've been out, uh, you know, to everyone. And that has been part of my um, part of me and part of my interview process. And the way that it's part of my interview process is, is that now that we are in a new era of policing, and there is a significant um, desire for diversity, in our police departments as there should be. This is one piece of diversity that I bring to the agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, I'm sure that there are many LGBTQ uh, officers in policing across the United States. I think that we probably have more here in California than possibly other places. Uh, but one thing that is not prevalent is men who identify as gay being in command staff roles and especially in police chief roles. Right. And so I've been very, uh, very out about that. Um, Not for the purpose of, of touting it, but for the purpose of letting people know that I may not know what it's like to be them, whether that's a person of color or a female or transgender or whatever it may be, but I can at least empathize with that because of the diversity that I have in my own personal life and how I've been impacted by that diversity as well. Yeah. And I think it's really important. I mean, as a leader, especially you inspire people. Um, there was a documentary we just watched about Pete Buttigieg, uh, you know, Mayor Pete who ran for president And one of the things that he said was important for him to be out and that he experienced on the campaign trail was how much of an inspiration he was to young people to show them what was possible Um, for young people who doubt, who question, who wonder, much like you and I did when we were young, you know, what would be possible for us uh, being gay? You know, you're, you're showing them that there are no limits. And I think that's really, really great. Obviously, you got the job. So the reception you got from the selection committee and from the community must have been positive. It has been. Yeah. You know, I was fortunate enough to go through several processes uh, when looking at promotional opportunities. And I never experienced any type of negativity. It was always very positive. And it's been a very welcoming perception. Great. And and reception, I should say, uh, to me and the person that I am and uh, what I bring to the table as far as my personal and professional experiences. And you've already had some fun on the job. Uh, it has been a very busy nine months. Yes, we've, uh, we've had some significant things that have occurred. Um, the fun stuff has been uh, bear sightings in neighborhoods and uh, lots of rain that uh, people have a lot of questions about that call our 
communications center and ask some interesting and sometimes funny uh, and sometimes silly questions. Uh, and then we've had some some more serious stuff too. We've uh, my week number five here. We uh, dealt with the arrest of a former um, mayor of our yep. city for uh, multiple felony counts. Uh, we have had flooding in our city. We have had a significant role in working collaboratively with our advocates and how we are approaching and dealing with our unhoused population. And uh, we've had two threats of school shootings, one uh, report of a person with a gun at one of our schools. And then most recently we had a shooting that occurred at one of our businesses in the city. And we were able to work with our law enforcement partners and take that person into custody in Reno, Nevada, Reno, Reno, Nevada, just a couple of days ago. Wow. Some of that sounds interesting from a law enforcement perspective, perhaps not as fun as being involved in a homecoming proposal. So uh, let's talk about that, because I'm not sure a lot of listeners would ever imagine a police chief would get involved in a high school homecoming proposal. But I thought that story was so amazing when I heard it. Tell our listeners what happened. So I had a young man who came into my office and came to the front counter at the station and told the dispatcher that he would like to talk to the police chief, uh, which in a small town, that's something that's able to be done pretty easily. So the dispatcher came to get me and I walked out and said, how can I help you? And he said, I have a huge favor to ask you. We have homecoming coming up. This was on a Wednesday, by the way, we have homecoming coming up and I want to ask my girlfriend to go to homecoming with me and I would like your help in doing that. And I said, okay, I'm in, what do you want me to do? And so he came up with this plan and said, you know, I'd like to like you to pull me out, uh, act like, you know, something's wrong and then pull something out of my bag. That will be a sign asking her to go to homecoming with me. And I said, okay, we can do that. And I said, have you talked to the principal about this? And he says, not yet. I said, well, you talk to the principal, you see if she's on board, and then we'll make this happen if uh, she's good with it. So he did. And uh, that was a Wednesday that he came into my office. We did the proposal on Friday because homecoming was on Saturday. And so working with the principal and with him, he told us where he was going to be, which would be out in the quad. And so we spotted him in the quad, walked over asked him if he was what his name was and he provided that and uh i said uh, we need to speak to you and so he kind of stepped over towards me and his girlfriend looked at me and i said do you mind if i look in your backpack and he said no and i said is there something in here that you want to tell me about and he said i don't think so and i looked at his girlfriend and said are you aware of what's in his backpack. And she kind of laughed. <laughs> and then she looked at me and realized that I was being serious. And I said, no, I'm, I'm seriously, are, are you aware what's in his backpack? Because this is not a laughing matter. And she got real serious and said, no. And so I opened up his backpack and pulled out the sign that he had made, which was a poster sign. 
and held it up toward her. And it said, it would be a crime if you wouldn't go to homecoming with me. Will you go to homecoming? <laughs> and of course she said yes. And everybody in the quad was watching and videotaping. And I found out recently that there was a contest as to the most unique proposal that was voted on by the student body and they won. I would hope so. <laughs> I would hope so. And not only did they get the police chief to do it, but they got the police chief to do it with pink hair. Okay, so let's talk about that. I saw some pictures of that as well uh, for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Talk about yes. the challenge you put out. Yeah, so our challenge was is that uh, you know we, we got to start thinking outside the box. We got to start humanizing those of us who are wearing a uniform and wearing a badge and uh, showing how we connect with our with our community. And uh, so I put the challenge out to our community and our department that if we raise twenty five hundred dollars for the Breast Cancer Awareness Month fundraiser that we were doing that would benefit the North Bay Cancer Alliance, that I would dye my hair pink for the remainder of the month of October. And so that challenge was put out on October 1st. And by October, the morning of October 12th, we had reached the goal of $2,500. And that evening on October 12th, my hair was dyed pink and remained pink for the rest of the month. <laughs> Good for you. So it was very good. We ended up raising uh, nearly $2,800 for the North Bay Cancer Alliance. That's great. And we will be presenting a check to them here in the next couple of weeks. Nice. Congratulations. Thank that's, you. That's really awesome. Well, let's shift gears a bit. Uh, you know, you've talked about some of the, the fun and, and uh, exciting parts of the job, but let's face it, it's tough right now. Um, it's really difficult teaching in it and, and having worked in it for the number of years, uh, you know, we've seen Rodney King, Oscar Grant, Eric Garner, and then most recently George Floyd. What's it been like, uh, especially now in a leadership position, witnessing these events happen and really the public opinion about law enforcement shifting so dramatically? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it is difficult. I think, uh, you know, it weighs heavy on me. It's difficult for me as a, uh, as a chief and leading a, an agency. But I think that many times it almost weighs more heavily on our folks who are out on the street because mm -hmm. they're experiencing that stuff every day. They're having the interactions with people. Sometimes those interactions are good. Sometimes they're not. Uh, and they're facing the, uh, the, the criticism that is received, no matter what they're doing. Uh, we're in a day of technology that Everything is instantly available to everyone across the world through some type of social media platform. People are pulling out phones and, and recording everything, and that's fine. Uh, but it's tough. It's a tough environment to be in. And so I think that, you know, it's one of the things that I've subscribed to my entire career is just being visible and having those conversations with people and sometimes conversations are difficult and sometimes they, uh, you're, you're going to be successful in changing someone's uh, view and sometimes you're not going to be successful. And, but it's just having those conversations that are important. And so the things that I've stressed are getting out from behind four walls of the building, getting out from behind the vehicle uh, and having those conversations. Our folks are doing foot patrols and bicycle patrols. Uh, we just did a comparative analysis of our foot and bike patrols from a year ago to today. 
and uh, a year ago from from April of 2020 to April of 2021 to compared to April of 2021 till October of 2021 in a very short six month period, we have increased our foot patrols and our bicycle patrols by 500%. Mm-hmm. And that's huge, mm-hmm. especially in a small city where people can see you. So I try to make it a practice of walking down the street, having conversations with people and really engaging them because, you know, sometimes they may have perceptions and they may have these ideas that uh, are real and real to them. And then they have a total change of how they see things when they have a conversation with you and find out the experiences that you've had. And that includes me and our officers as well. But it's been a difficult time. Uh, and I think that, you know, reform was needed in many ways, and we're moving towards that. So there have been some legislative actions that have taken place that will go into effect in January, uh, and some others that are still on the table to look at, and we'll continue to go down that path. And I think one of the biggest things is, is just connecting with the community, having a relationship with the community. But the other thing that can't be forgotten is that relationship and connection that you have to have with your personnel as well. And it's difficult for them and it it can really weigh heavy on their morale and really exploiting uh, the positive things that we're doing uh, with our folks and our community are important. And so we've been able to do that with social media. Many agencies have been able to do that with social media. And now we're getting back to the restrictions from the pandemic being lifted. Mm -hmm. So we can do more community events. Uh, And, you know, all those things are great to try to build those relationships and strengthen them. So what are you finding in terms of reception uh, of the police department participating in community events. I mean, I know in, in major cities across the U.S., there is a concerted effort to exclude police from even things like pride celebrations, right? LGBTQ officers are being told, you're not welcome to participate in pride parades and pride events. And so when departments have approached these pride organizers, for example, they've been told, we don't even want to talk to you. It, it's the problem has gotten so bad that there's not even a willingness to sit down at the table and talk. And it sounds like you've been able to bridge that a little bit in Sebastopol. But what do you think the answer is for law enforcement in general? Yeah, you know, I, I think that you've got to have people who are willing to sit down and talk and to actively listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if, if you're if you're willing to sit down and talk and to listen. Uh, then you might be able to come to some type of compromise. Uh, I was recently in Palm Springs, and I had wondered if they were going to allow law enforcement to walk and be a part of their pride events. And I was extremely happy to see that they did. Oh, wow. That's uh, great there to were know. multiple multiple agencies who were there uh, with sheriff's departments and city police agencies, and they were actively a part. And, you know, that's that's a difficult thing for me to wrap my head around being someone who identifies with both of these groups. Mm -hmm. I identify as LGBTQ and I identify as law enforcement. 
And so it's very difficult for me as a member of the LGBTQ community who prides itself in inclusivity Mm -hmm. of everyone. It saddens me to see that a specific group of people are being excluded and not being allowed to participate just because of the job that they have and the uniform that they wear. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's saddening to me, um, especially with a, a group and community that I identify with that talks so much of the inclusivity that we provide. And then to see that, that law enforcement entity be excluded. And the thing is, is that, you know, we, we've we've talked many years about getting away from the us versus them mentality. And now, and, and we used to preach that a lot to our personnel mm-hmm. because our personnel had the uh, perception of it's us as the police department versus all of them out there. And though we only deal with three to 6% of society who uh, give us that negative lens to look through because we're dealing with them all the time. We have to remember that 94 to 97% of the community, we got to look at with the positive ones. We can't just paint the brush. And I, uh, it it disheartens me when our community, whatever community it may be, uh, looks at that 1% or less than 1% of police officers who do the wrong thing, who tarnish the badge. And then they paint that brush across all of us right uh, in this in this line of work right well you've had a chance to you know explore beyond the city limits of Sebastopol and get a feel for the law enforcement community here in Sonoma County and clearly we have a huge LGBT community in Sonoma County as well what's your perspective on what law enforcement in general could be doing better here in the North Bay to build relationships with LGBT people you know I, I think that probably it just boils down to us getting out and having conversations, sitting down, being invited to the table and inviting others to the table. Uh, it's that inclusivity piece that we need to really build upon. The problem is, is that in this county, and though everybody's experiencing this to some extent, our resources are very limited. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it very difficult. I mean, I, I operate with a department of 14 sworn members and six professional staff. Uh, and you incorporate holiday, vacation, injuries, and family leave on those, and you're not left with a very big workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's difficult. So I, I'd love to see more money dedicated to our law enforcement entities in this county uh, so that we can provide those staffing levels and take some of that money as well and dedicate it to building the relationships with a variety of communities, including the LGBTQ community and being a part of that. And, and, you know, we, we do things in our personal time that contribute to that relationship as well. Uh, but I just, 
it would be great if people would be able to see us as both of those people at the same time mm-hmm. as a, as a uh, law enforcement officer, as a member of the LGBTQ community, as a member of a community of color uh, or whatever community it may be so that they can see the similarities and parallels that we have in our lives that take us down that same path and understand the fact that we cannot do our jobs without them Mm -hmm. and we need them Mm -hmm. and we want them to have a positive perception of us and know that we're out there doing the right thing. And so I think, you know, the biggest thing is, is, is just creating those opportunities where we might be able to get out and do the things. Sonoma State University Police Department's got a great program going on right now called Black and Brown and Blue. And that's connecting with the community of colors that allow that where they're bringing speakers in who are in law enforcement, who are black and brown and showing that connection and those parallels with communities of color that allow them to show how that relationship can be built. Um, And it would be great if we had other opportunities like that as well in the county. Yeah. You know, I think one of the most powerful things, and you alluded to this, that departments can do is create liaison positions with different communities, right? So ideally, you have a member of the of the department who is a member of that same community. In this case, we're talking about LGBT people. And so LGBT liaison programs around the country are emerging. So we humanize that contact within the police department. There's a designated person, a point person that people can call if there's an issue and they know that this person is also a member of their community. Absolutely. Thoughts about that? Is that a good strategy for departments? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic strategy. You know, you you hope that you've got enough personnel that you can do that with as many communities that you have that are represented in the area that you're policing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that it's, it's a significant need. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons that it's, very important to have that LGBTQ liaison officer is, is there are many characteristics of people that are outward physical characteristics that are easily seen, but being LGBTQ is not something that's always easily seen. Right. And for communities who are looking in at the diversity of their police department, just by looking in, they may not see, that person. And so making it known that you have a member of your department who is LGBTQ and that you've got an LGBTQ liaison, even if that person is not LGBTQ, you've got that liaison who's building that relationship, who recognizes that community and understands that that community needs that relationship building with law enforcement so that they feel comfortable in reporting things because many people are not willing to report various crimes, especially in the LGBTQ community where they may be feeling like they're not being heard because of how they identify, right? because of the uh, heteronormative characteristics that have been typically associated with law enforcement. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And that, I think, can go, that whole concept, that whole community liaison concept can go a long way to 
addressing, I think, one of the greatest social problems we have, which is an unhoused population, right? So this is a big, big question for you, and we only have a few minutes left, so I don't think we're going to be able to solve it in this particular conversation, but, you know, where do you begin? I mean, we have mental health issues, we have drug addiction issues, we have socioeconomic issues, and then there's a whole youth population, right? And especially for LGBT youth, we know 40% of homeless youth are LGBTQ identified. Where do we begin in trying to solve the unhoused population problem? Well, I don't know that we'll ever solve that. Uh, There are folks who want to be unhoused and there are folks who don't want to be unhoused. But I think the, the best place for us to start is that collaborative relationship with our advocacy groups who have that relationship with our unhoused, who may have experienced a negative uh, contact with police and change that narrative for them. Working with those advocacy groups, we've done that in Sebastopol. We've, we've had uh, recent uh, matters that we've addressed regarding our unhoused population, but we've done it in such a way that it has received praise from the unhoused community themselves when they've been interviewed by the media uh, and how we've dealt with that. And that's because we've worked collaboratively with our advocacy groups, with our city departments in how we're doing that. We're not the first touch. We shouldn't be the first touch. That first touch should be the advocacy group and let them take that relationship that they have, build on that relationship and introduce us into that relationship so that we can have a solid foundation as we're going into that contact and let people know that we're there to help. I mean, our our slogan for law enforcement has been to protect and serve for many years. And that's what we do. We are helping those who cannot help themselves. And so we've got to do it in a collaborative way. uh, And we've got to find more funding to address the issues of that are created from mental health and addiction that lead to the homelessness that we're seeing and experiencing uh, so that we can get folks the the help and the resources that they need. Yeah. Well, you bring up, I, I think you make a, a really important point and a revelation that a lot of cities are coming to or realizing is that law enforcement may not be the best first point of contact for people who are suffering from mental health problems, drug addiction, and, and basically homelessness. Um, and so maybe maybe we're on to something here. Maybe this is how we're going to solve the problem is by bringing in, as you say, these specialized adv- advocacy groups who know perhaps better than law enforcement does. We'll see. Yeah, and, and it has to be a collaborative relationship because one group alone cannot do it alone. Right. Uh, but the responsibility has been put on law enforcement for many years because we've been the only 24-7 operation. And when things happen in the middle of the night, they call the police. But we've got to do something different. We've got to look at things from a different perspective now. Fantastic. We have been talking with Police Chief Kevin Kilgore of the Sebastopol Police Department and a member of our local LGBTQ community. We are so happy to have you here in the North Bay. And I look forward to having you back on to talk about some of the other issues that we didn't get to today. Thanks so much, Greg. I appreciate you having me and uh, look forward to talking more. And that wraps up our hour. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on 104.9 KRCB-FM, Sonoma County's NPR station.
In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at outbeatnews.com. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know. Broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move. I'll send you a postcard from the of the world. Postcards from Sonoma County. What people are talking about. Direct from the locals. Greetings from Sebastopol. The Committee for the Unhoused presented its report to the Sebastopol City Council regarding the relocation of RV dwellers on Morris Street and discussed a proposed location to establish a temporary shelter village. The committee is Mayor Una Glass and Council Member Diana Rich, and a temporary ad hoc committee designated to assess the needs and input of currently unhoused people in Sebastopol and to provide support, guidance, and interface with West County Community Services, according to Glass. The committee's priority was to find a viable relocation with a sense of compassion that citizens and the City Council are feeling. It's a difficult living environment for those who live in RVs and vehicles on Morris Street, and those challenges need to be balanced with compassion for the surrounding community. That's this week's postcard from Sebastopol. I'm Tina Louise. Check out more postcards at krcb.org. Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.